Hello, gardeners, and welcome to the Garden Club of South Carolina podcast. This is Trish Bender, and today we have the privilege of visiting with Dr. Walker Miller of Six Mile, South Carolina. Walker is a retired professor of plant pathology and physiology at Clemson University, where he worked as an extension specialist and researcher. His job was to diagnose and teach how to manage plant health. He has served stints on the board of Carolina Farm Stewardship, Friends of Lake Kiwi, Discover Upcountry, and three Heritage Carter boards. He, along with his family, own and operate the Happy Berry, a small fruit farm in Six Mile, South Carolina, where they have been farming since 1979. Walker is also a certified crop advisor. He grows and assists others in how to grow and manage problems of fruit. As a farmer, a father, a retired professor, and what I love most, a citizen of the planet, Walker believes that we are in a climate crisis. And today we will be talking about his thoughts on how global warming is driving a complex set of climate changes. The question, as he poses it, is how do we address these climate changes in time so that we can avoid the sixth extinction of species on our planet, including that of mankind? If you are a landowner, a farmer, a homeowner, a landscaper, and a gardener, you owe it to yourself to join us today and listen to what he has to say. Welcome, Dr. Miller. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. So I posed a question to you that I'd like you to answer for our audience. The question is, is climate change real? Most definitely. I I believe it is a crisis. Uh, and is it real? I would say that uh, you just have to go outside and live outside for a little while. I have a small farm and I'm being impacted 19 different ways on that small farm by climate change. And I've just added another one, so it's actually 20 now. Uh, from a book that I recently read, <laughs> and so uh, you and I had talked earlier about this <clears throat> ideological bifurcation, if you will, where some people say global warming is hooey, it's manufactured, it's a capitalist model to sell new products and get us off of the oil dependency. What do you have to say about that? Well, global warming is the driver of climate change. Uh, Global warming, we knew about global warming uh, starting back in about 1867. There was a fellow back then who burned something, had a bunch of carbon dioxide, and was able to show that that carbon dioxide reflected heat uh, back. If you exposed it to heat radiation, it reflected it back, and that's what's going on. Uh, but on such a large scale, a, a much larger that scale. is creating a problem. Yes, yes, and there are a lot of other global warming gases besides carbon dioxide, uh, nitrous oxide, one that 
uh, is very evident as uh, a byproduct of our industrial farming model. It has 298 times the reflective capacity that one molecule of carbon dioxide has. Wow. Uh, others are, are things that we don't normally think of. Water vapor is a global warming gas. It reflects the heat back to Earth. Methane is another one. So there is a lot of pieces to the global warming puzzle. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have friends that say, global warming? Oh, you know, hey, we just experienced the coldest winter on record. Uh, right. What, what do you mean? We're not getting warmer. Uh, it's a it's a concept that is a little bit nebulous for the average person to grab a hold of and say, all right, this is. But and the reason I like the term climate change is that we all experience these climate changes, these uh, wobbles from the jet stream from the North Pole that bring down cold air, mm -hmm. or in the other direction that bring up the extremely warm air from the, the Gulf, or even worse, extremely warm and dry air from uh, El Nino's. Uh, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's a complex issue. And so, uh, I don't know, I can wax on here, but I think we've maybe exceeded uh, the concept, I think, is there. Yeah, and I think that, as you and I spoke, in fact, Mark Arena of Clemson University has a wonderful way. He's a good friend of mine. He has a wonderful way of putting it. He calls it the, the volatility, like the heartbeat. Mm -hmm. When, you know, if you have a steady heartbeat of rain, for example, you know, it's, it's consistent. Mm -hmm. It's measurable. It's got a good rhythm. But what we are now seeing in the volatility of climate change is almost like tachycardia mm -hmm. with... And then just a brief pause and then tachycardia. Mm -hmm. So if you can think of climate that should be a steady, predictable wavelength, and now it's erratic. Yes, I think that's what is erratic. I think that's the word that people can embrace and say, well, you know, you might be right, mm -hmm. because I too have experienced some erratic unpredictable weather in my own garden or unpredictable rains or yeah. heavy flooding. 2017, we had drought that was 11 weeks long. Normal drought for this area, the normal rhythm, as you would see, is two to three weeks of drought. Mm -hmm. And an air trickle irrigation system is enough to get you from one rainfall to the next. But when you have 10 or 11 weeks, then the farmer is faced with the problem. I can only put so much water out here a day, depending upon the design of my system. Mm -hmm. And I designed my system for that normal rhythm back in the 1970s, mm -hmm. when that normal rhythm is not today. So you are absolutely right. So now we are faced with not only having to recognize that we are in a, a volatile, erratic um, new model. Mm -hmm. But we have to adapt to this new model in such a way that not only secures our survival, but what you're saying is perhaps even reverses the devastating effect. Is that correct? Yes, yes. I, I think the two key words here 
are one we're going to have to adapt. Uh, how are we going to stay cool in the future when uh, the tremendous heat waves in Europe are killing hundreds, if not thousands, of people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so we've got to adapt to this new hot situation. At the same time, we've got to mitigate uh, the cause of it. Mm-hmm. Which for you is carbon. Which Carbon well, mitigation. It's recapture. Carbon, it's, uh, there, there's a lot to be done with regards to mitigation, with regards to carbon. Mm-hmm. But if you, we, I don't know if we'll get far enough into this conversation to talk about char and biochar. Okay. But these, this char has a cation exchange, anion exchange, and uh, increased water holding capacity and increased infiltration rate. Mm-hmm. So these characteristics enable us water holding capacity. If I can increase the water holding capacity of my farm by 10%, for example. Right. Uh, you might be able to manage a longer drought. I can manage a longer drought mm-hmm. better with my trickle irrigation system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, the cation and anion exchange capacity currently uh, you put on fertilizer because the soils of this where we're sitting right now are kaolinitic soils, mm-hmm. which are extremely old soils. Mm-hmm. I mean, billion years. Right, uh, right, that they, we're sitting on right now right, up at Clemson Botanical Gardens. Y- yes, yes. <laughs> and they have a very low cation exchange and they have very low anion exchange. Now, for 10,000 years... This area was a uh, either right here a, a Piedmont Prairie, or as you got closer, an actual savanna. Mm-hmm. And the people who lived here at the time were the woodland people ten thousand years ago, say. And lightning strikes; these prairies and savannas were one maintained, two burned annually, mm-hmm. and the grass wards were sometimes. 10, 12, 15 feet tall. And they would burn very hot at the top, suck all the oxygen out of the bottom, and create charcoal. And that charcoal was deposited year after year after year to where 500 years ago, we had some really fantastic soils in this area. But then man came along. Then man came along. And decided that we would have and, dominion and over everything. Those right. Soils and brought the European plow with him, and all erosion took all that topsoil, excuse me, down the river, mm-hmm. and so we're left with the this kaolinite. Right. That we've got right. now. So uh, I want to ask you, obviously, our system is so entrenched our farming technologies, our dependence on um, industrial agriculture, our industrial cattle, livestock, etc. It's not like we're going to be able to change this model overnight. But you feel like on a smaller scale, we have the opportunity to address things where we feel like we are actually contributing to the solution. Is that yes. correct? Talk yes. to me about uh, that. All right. Uh, I, I want to divide this up, small scale and large scale. Okay. 
All right, the large scale, if we can talk about the industrial agriculture, there is uh, research afoot that perennial wheat, perennial sunflowers, Mm -hmm. an oil crop, uh, perennial barley, uh, perennial sorghum. Which up until now has all been an annual crop. It's all exactly. an- mm-hmm. annual crops, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So is we can convert from annual to perennial, and then we're no longer plowing the land. We are building organic matter in that land, even if we do nothing. Just just the fact that we're growing it. Just the fact year. that we're creating a perennial monoculture. Okay. We're still doing a monoculture system. We're still doing a monoculture. Okay. All right. So, and all shrimp farms have a waste stream. Sure. And what do they do with their waste stream? Currently, they no-till agriculture, for example. Mm-hmm. They get through the cotton stalks or the soybeans are chopped up, put back on top of the ground, Yep. controls erosion. But the problem with that is that those, because it's a high oxygen level at the surface, microbial oxidation of those, that litter, is rapid. 12, 18 months is a high number. Okay. Uh, so that carbon is right back yep, up. Yep, it's there. just shooting right back out yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Now, if that... If, we if you were, could slow that process down, yes. that's the key. Yeah, that's the key. To create a recalcitrance. Yes. Okay. To create a recalcitrant carbon. For example, putting a mobile biochar kiln behind a tractor, mm-hmm. putting the trash through the kiln, because they have kilns that are automated now. Wow. That you can put carbon in this end and come out with char at the other end. And that quickly? Hey, if you drive slow enough. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and you know, it's it's a technology uh-huh. advancement. Uh-huh. Most biochar, most input one end out the other end are stationary at this time. But there is no reason why those stationary ones could not be made mobile. Are there other technologies, like I, I see in, when we went to Belize last year, one of the things that we're seeing is the shade-grown techniques, where you actually have a nursery of hardwoods or, you know, even pine here. Mm-hmm. You do something on your farm with pine. Yes, yes, and I think these, uh, 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 one issue here is photosynthetic efficiency. Sure. Most plants, soybean plants, tomato plants. Uh, they need to broil. No, no, they don't. They don't? No. Uh, at roughly somewhere between 50 and 60%, their photosynthetic efficiency. So if we were to plot it, now, of course, our audience can't see you, me draw the finger, but it ra- rises rapidly up to about 40%, then tapers off as it goes through 50 when it gets to 60, it's going out almost level. Going up, but very slowly. And so that, and rarely. Exceeds. Now, are we talking 60% sun or 60% shade? 60% sun. Sun, okay. 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 All right, so that offers. The so opposite. you can cut it in half almost and almost. still produce. Yes. Okay, I get it. All right, all right. And so that offers the opportunity for the industrial farm in the future to put perennial crops in their single monocrop fields. Okay. And so we can start increasing the diversity mm-hmm. and depending upon their, their marketing propensities and what 
we as consumers demand. Uh, Are there a lot of models already on the in the market for perennial wheat and perennial soy and perennial? No, uh, at this point, it's all experimental. It's, it's all, all experimental. experimental. Okay, uh, who's doing that research right now? Well, it, a lot of it's being done at the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. Okay, and the Land Institute is cooperating with. The University of Georgia, they supposedly have some experiments, although I've not been able to find them. Although I do know that perennial wheat is growing in alongside the highway in Georgia. Interesting. Uh, and uh, there's also cooperation with uh, Minnesota. The Atlantis is also cooperating with China, uh, developing a perennial rice. Uh, hmm. uh, so they, the opportunities are there. And how cotton, much effect? We grow a bunch of it. Yeah, we grow a lot of cotton. Uh, that started out as a perennial. I have a buddy whose parents uh, have a cotton tree in their yard in Costa Rica. Okay. And so, do we need to be growing cotton as an annual? It, it was it facilitated the industrial model. It's certainly easier to harvest. Yes. As a annual. As a, as an annual. As a low growing annual, yeah, right? Yeah. I can't see a cotton gin going treetop. Yeah, I can't either. But it's just a new model. It's just shifting our our paradigm yes. to a perennial our model. Thinking, the way we, the okay. way we think about it. Okay. Well, now that's of, on the side of the farming industry. That's the industrial side. Okay. Now what? the small farmer. Yes. Now, now, now are you consider yourself a small farmer? I, I do. How we're, many crop? How many acres do you farm? We have about 22 acres. Oh, that is small. Four, okay. 14 acres of it in actual production. Okay. Uh, we grow uh, six crops at this point in time that we are actually commercially mm -hmm. selling, pick your own, or direct marketing in local farmers markets. We have... Uh, other crops which we're, we're bringing along, investigating, olive trees for one. We've been moved from zone 7 to zone 8A. Because uh, of climate change. Because of climate change. Changing zones, okay. All right. Uh, we're experimenting with European chestnuts uh, at this point, mm. is, which is a much sweeter chestnut than mm -hmm. Dunstan chestnut or... And, um, Let's see. And you said that you have Italian pine. Hmm? You have Italian pine growing. Yes, we have the Italian stone pine growing, pine nuts, which someday, maybe. Uh, and we have Loblaw. We're actually growing three kinds of pine trees uh, on east-west rows across the farm. Now, what is the function of that? It, the pine trees cool the farm. That is an adaptation strategy. Okay. Uh, and mitigation strategy because pine needles are much more recalcitrant, meaning they break down a lot slower. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're not shooting the carbon out into the atmosphere. It might take 100 years or 200 years or... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they're actually almost... They're not capturing carbon, though. Yes, they are. They uh, are. Because they're, because they're, they're, they're not releasing it as fast. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, a lava pine that lives for 100 years is sequestering carbon in that pine tree okay. for 100 years. Okay. Uh, Italian stone pine sequestering it for 250, uh, longleaf pine for 500 years. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is, uh, you know. Now how do you, you make them in east-west rows? Yes. In uh, your farm. There, there's a so you have these large 
um, swaths of acreage that are open with these yeah, kind of uh, windbreaks, kind of? Yeah, hey. Uh, Is that how it works for you? doing it, so I just said, all You're right. trying a new method. Well, I'm just out there doing it, uh -huh. and uh, what I found is that blueberry plants and pine trees love each other. Right. <laughs> I planted a, a pine tree where there were some weak plants, and all of a sudden those blueberries say, yes, I, I, I like this. <laughs> now, would you consider them almost like a nurse plant for your crop? Possibly. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I have some horticulturists saying, Miller, you're as crazy as a loon. <laughs> Hey, but it's working. You're seeing results. Yeah. Uh, okay. And the customers love it. Uh -huh. Here they've got this shade out there. They can park their baby in the shade. <laughs> right. And so it's, it's a, but. Uh, so that's one of the technologies that you're employing mm -hmm. um, to create a perennial yeah, and model. I'm, and I'm doing a, a crowd, trying to get together to do a crowdfunding project so I can have an on-farm biochar kiln. Good for you. And I've already started collecting, because uh, we have a waste stream at the Happy Berry, blueberry prunings, blackberry mm -hmm. prunings, sure. All, sure. all these different prunings that we have. And so we're storing these prunings so that, and I've got estimates, designs, I work with uh, mechanical engineering class. So you're trying to create a biochar system with products that would normally release carbon pretty quickly. Yes. I see. Yeah. Okay. Now, blueberry stems really tough. And it, it takes it five, seven, eight years to break down where soybean trash is up there in eight to 12, maybe we're lucky, 18 months. Okay. Um, okay. So, but it's back up there mm -hmm. in a relative issue because seven, eight years, pretty short amount of time when we're thinking planetary system sure where i can make char and put it back on the ground from that and increase my cation exchange increase my anion exchange water holding absorptive capacity all these things that benefit the farm now i want to take a minute to take a break for just a second and sidestep and talk about char because you have mentioned maybe a half a dozen times through our conversation about biochar mm -hmm. for the average home gardener this is a brand new term. Mm -hmm. So explain to me and our audience, what is biochar, how is it made, and what purpose does it serve? Okay, biochar is made through a process called pyrolysis. Mm -hmm. uh, and what that means is, is that you burn a carbon source without oxygen. Okay, and to create charcoal. To create charcoal. Now pyrolysis, once the temperature gets to 300 degrees Celsius or centigrade, uh, it becomes exothermic reaction. And so you don't have to input the heat. Okay. So you have uh, in a stationary biochar kiln, you put a starter fire underneath of it and it heats the kiln, mm -hmm. in this case, a stainless steel drum that we're thinking of at our farm, uh, up that is sealed but has a vent at the top and the vent goes back underneath the drum mm -hmm. and and when it gets 300 degrees so it's just recycling that heat that that yeah all right yeah it goes back down mm -hmm. and uh ignites it the gases that are produced mm -hmm. and this is important because it provides a safety feature uh 
because some of those gases that come off of pyrolysis can be quite toxic. Toxic, sure. So depending want, on which crop you're burning. Yep. Too. Well, pretty much all crops. Okay. Those gases are toxic. Okay. And so they need to be burned. Okay. All right. And you still have a lot of waste heat of this mm -hmm. process. So you a kiln is a tank within a tank. Sure. And sure. And so you're capturing that heat. And you can do lots of different things. You can generate electricity. You can heat water, mm -hmm. heat a greenhouse. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Right. So that there's lots of different ways to explore that. Not today. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And we're we're thinking of exploring that uh, by. So that's how you create biochar. Yeah. And that's... what is the benefit of biochar what? to the farmer and to the average home gardener yeah. and to the planet? Yeah. Well, you can go on the internet and buy biochar. Or you can set up what's called a Tlud, T-L-U-D, in okay. your own yard. Okay. And but why would we want to? Because you're going to increase your cation exchange, increase your anion exchange, water holding capacity, and infiltration rate of water to your soils, to your flower beds, wherever you use it. Okay. Uh, Are you using biochar now on no, your farm? No. The commercial biochar that's available on a per acre basis is uh, prohibitively expensive. Okay. And so that is the reason for the interest in creating... Your own kiln. The, the own kiln. Mm -hmm. uh, but for a home gardener... But for a home gardener... You're probably looking maybe $25 for an average yeah, size bed. Bag of biochar. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which you can add. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so I'd have to go through the arithmetic how, how much to add to a particular square foot of. Ground. Didn't you say like 10 but pounds I'm sure an acre must or have something? Some information like that on the bag. Yeah. So, uh, it turns out that uh, 20,000 pounds of biochar is equivalent to 1% organic matter per acre. So that's 10 tons per acre. So if you start buying 10 tons of biochar, uh, even at, uh, and, and they sell it in bulk capacity, mm -hmm. not by the pound. Mm -hmm. So it's... Uh, are there any industrial models that are already employing biochar that you're aware of? I'm not aware of okay. anyone that's doing it. I know Other that Nassau than, was doing a lot of research on biochar. There's a, there's a raspberry grower up in North Carolina that is making his own char and putting it back on. Oh, the so side. you already have a model on a smaller scale. There are okay. some smaller farmers out there because there are there's a lot of interest in biochar. How did you get turned on to this biochar? Uh, through my reading. Through your research and yeah. reading? Yeah. How you can reverse climate change in your yeah. own way? Yeah. How, how can I adapt to this and... Okay. Uh, mitigate it. Uh, uh, you know, when I think about a backyard gardener, uh, you know, they they are really quite good. I mean, they, they are growing perennials. Uh, trees are, are part of their landscape. Mm -hmm. uh, what they do the, with their waste stream, though, I think is important. Uh, they shouldn't take it to the curb and send it off to, and no, who knows how that's mm -hmm. processed. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. Uh, and so, particularly if they're using inorganic fertilizers. Yeah. So there's lots of chippers out there, grinders, uh, uh, and 
your waste stream from your yard, mm -hmm. grind it out, mm -hmm. use a side delivery mower, blow it back underneath your flower beds, shrubs, uh, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. That's called windrow composting. And I've been very successful using windrow composting on the farm. Uh, I have gone from a half percent organic matter in 38 years to eight, nine percent organic matter. Wow. And so, so that's, that's a big dose. You know, mm -hmm. Each percentage is worth 10 tons of carbon per acre. There you go. Uh, Not to mention the amount of water. Yeah. that you're saving yeah the, the water because you're mulching heavier and i'm building my cation exchange uh -huh. anion exchange now there is an issue with uh blueberries the ph greatly influences sure cation exchange so do you have to go back behind it with yeah. alum and so well uh biochar it tends to be alkaline in nature okay uh, and so i don't have the experience Mm -hmm. uh, Clemson University, uh, Juan Melgar, Dr. Melgar, and his student are doing an experiment at the farm using five and ten tons of biochar per acre uh, in plots on mm -hmm. the farm. Yeah, I explained to him, boy, that, that's an expensive treatment that you've got there. <laughs> uh, maybe, uh, if I produce 500 pounds of char per acre, it'll take me ten years to simulate the low rate. Right, uh, right. And so, but you've got to start someplace. Sure. And so this is where <clears throat> we want to change the paradigm of agriculture, both for the small farmer and the large farmer. And so we start now. Mm -hmm. That one researcher has calculated that it, we could snap our fingers and have all the farms in the world start creating and using biochar in their production system, that we could turn global warming around and reduce our global warming gases from, what are they now, about 415, yeah. 416. They're pretty high. Uh, Down to in the 200s, right? In, in the 270, 280 range mm -hmm. in 15 to 20 years. Hmm. So we can do this. We've just got to get the will to do this, which, you know... I start thinking about this problem of uh, adaptation, mitigation, uh, and I divide it into two areas. One is you got to stop putting it up there, mm -hmm. and the other is you got to put it back in the ground. But in order to get, most farmers aren't like me, willing to go out there and do research. And mm -hmm. they, mm -hmm. they, they just want to make their bread and butter and, and raise their family. And so it's a, a high-risk situation uh, for, as they perceive it. And so we need to provide incentives for them. And that's where the, the politics comes in. Mm -hmm. Folks, if a lot of home gardeners say, hey, I use biochar and it works, uh, why aren't you using biochar right. in right. the industrial market? Right. Uh, and talking to their congressmen, their senators, both at the state and at the federal level, uh, they have the opportunity to... To influence. maybe influence. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the other thing that I'm seeing in a trend is the, the desire to be more connected to your food source. Mm -hmm. And so that we are pursuing more farmer's markets, more community gardens, mm -hmm. more um, 
community-supported agricultural models mm -hmm. where I can actually, you know, buy a part of a cow that mm -hmm. I know is growing and grass-fed mm -hmm. just a couple of miles from my home. Mm -hmm. So those are smaller-scale farms mm -hmm. which are more adaptable. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, but uh, there's not enough small-scale farmers out there. I am a, a rarity. I'm, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, at our farmers markets here in Clemson, for example, we have trouble coming up with a vegetable producer uh, hmm. that, uh, that... That can do small-scale? That, that does small-scale and wow. grows vegetables for, for the farmers market. And it's there consistently with whatever vegetable is in season. Yeah. So, so uh, at this point in time, there is not enough small farmers out there to feed us. Now, if you go to Africa, where most of the farmers, there is, you know, literally hundreds, thousands, millions of small farms, there the potential is there. But here in the U.S., we are so... We're far behind. We're far behind or we're so... Uh, how do I... We're, we're, we enjoy the good life that we're living <laughs> and don't want to get out there and, and do the work. Uh-huh. And in fact, that's a problem for small farmers. Uh, yeah, we're having a harder and harder a, time finding yeah, the labor. You know, I, I often think about the story of uh, mules and plowing the ground. You can have a one-up, two-up, four-up, eight-up, and how many acres a day you can cover with those mules, for example. Mm -hmm. And then came along came the tractor, and wow. Right. All right. So, uh, the and and burning fossil fuels with that tractor, and and then the erosion. It's uh, there is a uh, disconnect. A lot of labor involved in being a small farmer. Mm -hmm. So that labor is a, as I can tell you as a small farmer, labor is our biggest cost, and the reason why our prices are what they are. Mm -hmm. And so, let's get back on to the small gardener because we just we're almost out of time. In the very beginning of this conversation, you and I talked about um, climate change is real. We're all feeling it. We have an opportunity to reverse it if we change just a few little habits. Number one, small uh, reducing the size of our farming, um, adopting new permanent perennial technologies. But what do you say to the home gardener who says, you know, my piece is such a small drop in the bucket that it, it's never gonna have an impact? I would argue that that's an incorrect assumption. Okay. Uh, when I look around our farm, for example, I am surrounded by developments. Mm -hmm. Each the and each one of those houses has anywhere from half an acre up to two or three acres, in which they're managing. Mm -hmm. And so they are the biggest farmers, right within. Uh, they they're they're just doing it on a smaller scale. Smaller but, scale, but, but larger we, volume of smaller scale. Number of I see individuals mm -hmm. and. And I see them as good guys mm -hmm. because of the diversity of their yards. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So the more diverse we can create our micro habitats mm -hmm. and our home gardens. And your home garden. Okay. Yeah. And the better impact we will have on yeah. the overall climate change of the future? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so you are, as a home gardener, uh, as a person managing a landscape, are a very important part. I don't know of anyone who has really sat down. Uh, there is an issue here of what you count, uh, of what counts, what you include and what you exclude sure. from from the system. Right. You uh, count the stuff that's easy. Yeah, but start, we have a million citizen scientists in this country yeah. that could help create that count. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you're driving a car. Mm -hmm. I, it's, I see it's a small one out there. It's a hybrid. It's, and, <laughs> and it's a hybrid. And so you are trying to be, but it is still burning fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. uh, and you have electricity going into your home. Right. And you have a a uh, sewage system servicing your home. And so if we were to count from inception to disposal from the raw land, forest, to the what comes out of the sewage treatment plant, mm -hmm. uh, you're, that's 51% of the uh, global warming situation. Okay. Um, I saw on here your figure of 24% we were talking about mm -hmm. before we got started. And uh, I think that's a low ball figure. 33% uh, is better if you're focused just on agriculture. And, and we're talking about the amount of carbon footprint we have with life on this planet. The global warming footprint. The global warming footprint. And this, these are statistics that we took from Bill Gates' blog of Gates Notes, mm -hmm. where he says that 25% is from just the manufacturing of electricity, 24% from mass agriculture, 21% from manufacturing, 14% in our planes and cargo ships and trucks. And then the rest is the cost of doing business mm -hmm. as a human being on this planet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Yeah, so what you're saying is, in our home gardens, but also in our lifestyle. Mm -hmm. We can make subtle shifts mm -hmm. that will make a huge impact. So, right, you know, one, we had a board meeting at, at our farm recently, and the issue of, we said, we've got to take our prices up. We're, we live on the nice edge between profit and loss, mm -hmm. and loss last year. Okay. Uh, so we've got to go up in price. And then the supper came up, well, how could we do this without increasing the cost of food locally? And uh, the only way to do that is to reduce your production cost. Well, we were thinking, well, maybe we could sell carbon credits directly to you as a consumer. That way you could feel better about driving your car. Okay. Uh, you know. Sure. I, I do a carbon footprint exchange. the envelope figure of... Uh, how much carbon we're fixing just in our bluebird crop. Mm -hmm. And it, it turned out to be uh, 15,200 tons of carbon that we are keeping sequestered each year. Oh, yeah, you could definitely sell those as credits. Yeah, uh, we could sell those. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and we had several other ideas. So there is the, the, the possibility of, you know, if we sell those and that way we can keep the price down mm -hmm. because we have customers that are not as well off as others and 
we participate in the WIC program, the senior voucher programs and stuff okay. like that, which are losing money proposition for us because they only come in five hour bills. And if ours is eight dollars sure. or nine. Right. <laughs> right. You know, what do we do? Well Well let me ask you this in closing, because our time is more than up. <laughs> what sorry. that's okay. This is a wonderful, enriched conversation. And I'm sure that we, you and I could be talking for hours and hours about this. But to close, let me ask you, as a farmer, as a citizen scientist, as a human being, what gives you hope that climate change is something that we have the ability to impact and reverse? What gives me hope is that we are the cause of the problem. And therefore... We are the solution uh, that, you know, we're putting this all out there. We're the cause. And if we're the cause, then it's obvious that we can be the solution. Well, Dr. Walker Miller, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. If you'd like to visit Dr. Miller's farm, it is The Happy Berry, which is online at thehappyberry.com. And this has been a recording on climate change, one of our newest National Garden Club committees and initiatives. This is Trish Bender. Happy gardening.